you have your Bibles and would turn with me to Matthew 27, the 27th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to pick up where we left off in this particular chapter as we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, considering now the time when Jesus is about to die on the cross. And as I mentioned, there is a lot of history that's packed into just a few days, and what will happen there when Jesus dies upon the cross as he was buried and he was raised up three days later, will change the entirety of the things of this earth. It will change the entirety of life. It will change everything, and everything has since that time been changed. And as you are here today, I trust that you too will have your heart open to the gospel, whether you are saved or unsaved, where you trust the Lord or not, that this day will be a day of great change in all of our lives. Now as we begin our time of reading the Word of God this morning, we'll begin at verse 11, we'll go down through verse 25, and I want us to see us today in some sense as Barabbas. Now hear the Word of the Lord. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together... Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas, and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. And then the governor said, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Thus ends the reading of the Word of God. Our gracious Father in heaven, we ask that you would send the Spirit upon the preaching of the Word with power. The power of the salvation that you have sent your Son into the world to give, but must now be personally applied by the work of the Spirit of God to each of our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the truth, and that we might know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Lord, do that work only you can do now 
for thy great name, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. You may be seated. We live in a world of exchanges, of bartering, of exchanging something. I like something that you have. You like something that I have. We exchange. That's one form of it. But there are many exchanges. We live in a world like this. We exchange money for things that we deem valuable. We exchange our time for those with whom we love. In, In an ideal world... Justice is exchanged for punishment to criminals in order to uphold righteousness. We exchange gifts at Christmas time. We live in a world of transaction and exchanges. This morning I want to preach to you about a, a great exchange, actually the great exchange. As we consider the passage before us, we see, first of all, Jesus standing before Pilate, who was the governor. He was a Roman official, and he was over the region of Palestine of the Jews. And before Pilate, we see a quiet king, the Messiah, the one who had been prophesied from ages past, and now Jesus was acknowledging that he indeed was their king. Are you then a king, asked Pilate. It is as you say. He firmly and explicitly acknowledged this. And what we have here are two kingdoms that are represented face to face as they interchange with one another over the next several hours. Jesus representing God's kingdom and Pilate representing all of the kingdom of the world. The final clash is now coming to head between the promised seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This great cosmic battle which has been going on since the fall of man when man left his original state rebelled against God and now this cosmic battle has been taking place And God would have the victory, but he would have it in a most unusual way, a way that demonstrates a great love that he has for this world and for sinners, a way that would reconcile all things into himself, whether things visible or invisible, things upon the earth and things in heaven. Our great God is now sending his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world to provide that salvation that only he can give. That salvation would come with a great clash between two kingdoms, a great cosmic battle that would only be won spiritually. And yet that would have implications over everything physically. So we see a quiet king. Obeying the will of his Father, even to the point of suffering upon the death of the cross, in complete compliance, quietly submitting to the Father's will, even obeying his earthly authorities. Secondly, we see an innocent king, and Pilate the governor knew this, his wife knew this, Pilate testified of this, he even said that he knew that this was an innocent man and that the Jews had turned him over because of envy. Oh, envy. 
What a wicked enemy of ours, this envy, but one that we have in our hearts, one that each one of us fights with, this envy for somebody else, this pride that wells itself up in our own life, and this is an internal enemy that we all fight with. We turn innocent people over because of envy. We struggle in our hearts with people uh, because of our envy more than it is their sin. And so everyone present, we, we, they, they knew that Jesus was innocent. The Jews had nothing on him. They had to find false witnesses that would rise up against him, and, and they could not find anything on him. Pilate knew that he was an innocent man. He says, what do I have to do with this just man? And so he tries to wash himself of his own guilt. And ever since we have called out his name for 2,000 years in our creed of the one who had the authority to release him or to crucify him, and as we would have done if we were in his state, we would have turned him over to be crucified. Pilate was guilty. The Jews were guilty. There's only one innocent person among them all, and that was Jesus. Barabbas was guilty. Only Jesus was innocent, he was harmless, he was undefiled, he was holy. And then we come to the place where I want to give us our focus this, this morning, and that is we, we see an atoning king. We have before us a quiet king, we have one who is a just and innocent king, but we have one who is an atoning king. We see this in verses 22 through, or 20 through 22, as we consider the text here. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. It was their custom at this time of the feast that they could ask for a prisoner and, and the governor would release to whom they ask. And so he asked, well, who is it that you wish? And they chose Barabbas. Well, what do you want us to do with this Jesus? Crucify him. What we see here is the coming to a head of this great climactic battle in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The work of Christ's atonement was pictured in a very special ritual in a time in the Old Testament every single year on the Day of Atonement that we read a portion of from Leviticus chapter 16. This was an object lesson given as a picture and as an experience through the things of this earth to show forth the spiritual reality that would come in Christ, but in and of itself would be incapable of providing. But in order to train our hearts and to train our minds and to help us to understand like little children with a, with a flannel graph, God takes a picture and he begins to show us through this imagery of what atonement would be required and how that was going to be accomplished. And so once a year, the high priest would then choose a bull and two goats. 
The bull he would offer for himself because he himself was a sinner. The two goats then would be set aside. And one time a year, these two goats would be brought to the tent of the meeting and God himself would make his selection upon the two goats. One goat would be chosen by God to be the offering for sin, the sin offering for the people of God. The other goat would be chosen to be the scapegoat. These two goats represent two aspects of what Christ did on the Day of Atonement. One would represent propitiation, the other would represent expiation. These big words which I'll come around to define in just a moment. Now all of this was going to be only on God's terms. He even told the great high priest, he said, now listen Aaron, if you ever go into the veil, behind the veil, into the holy of holies, any other time other than this time of the year, you will die. And in fact, if you do it any other way than the way that I am prescribing, you will die. You cannot come without blood, and you cannot come on your terms. You have to do it my way, because everything I'm showing here is going to picture something of what Jesus is going to do in the future. You've got to do it my way, God says. And by doing it my way, you will have a good picture of what I am going to do through my son Jesus when I send him. So we have here this great object lesson. And on the 10th day of the seventh month, we have this great solemn occasion of what we call the Day of Atonement. The high priest would then enter into the Holy of Holies, where in it was the Ark of the Covenant. And here was the symbol of the very presence of God's presence here upon this earth. A God who was a righteous God. A God who is being merciful to His people who are all sinners because they have broken the very law of God, His righteous commandments encased in that ark. And here we have the nature of God and the presence of God and the expression of God in that holy place but he wants to communicate with us and he wants to have a relationship with us so he doesn't just show or stay in the heavenlies. He brings the heavens down to earth in this sacred space of which the high priest can now enter. When that high priest enters that one time of the year, he is dressed in all of his vestments. Vestments that are specifically given to represent the people of God before the face of God. Upon his breastplate are 12 stones, and on each one of those precious stones, precious stones, are the names of God's people represented in the 12 tribes, because God's people are precious to him. He bears them across his chest because God's people are dear to his heart. There is also a bearing of all 12 names upon his shoulders because he bears them up and he alone can carry the load that is required of them. And so the high priest enters representing the people of God, bearing them up on his shoulders, bearing them over the heart of God. And as he now comes in to represent the people before God, he takes the coals and puts it in a censer and puts incense on it so that the smoke from the incense 
clouds and shrouds the presence of the holy God so Aaron, the sinner, can live. I was picturing this as I thought about, wow, the very first time this ever came about had to be with great fear and trembling. The holy God is now that which requires of all sinners a just account, none of which we can give. No one can stand before the holy God who is the judge of all and who will bring all men into account for their sins. But He loves us and has provided a way for us to come into the relationship with Him and to have those sins removed and our guilt purged and His righteousness satisfied all in one work of Jesus Christ. But with the weightiness and the gravitas of which that day stood for, I imagine Aaron on the first occasion was pretty fearful. I can also imagine at the end of that day, he could say, the second year would come around. I'm not sure that was an occasion that he could ever quite get used to or relax. This was a solemn occasion. There was no one that was allowed even into the holy place. Even the priests were not allowed to go into the place where the showbread was and, or the, the incense altar. They couldn't go there. And No, not on this day. So the two goats here now that, that were represented in the Day of Atonement, one was going to be a sin offering and he was going to be sacrificed and the other was going to be a scapegoat and he would be released. And on this day, God is showing what's going to happen through two goats, what would happen in His one Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The sin offering was going to be the propitiatory sacrifice and the sin offering of which our sacrificial system reveals in other places with more detail would be that which would the offer would come and lay his hands upon that innocent animal and confess over that innocent animal the sins, showing a conveyance and an identity of my sin with that innocent animal. That innocent animal then would be slaughtered and the blood would be held and taken and captured and then the blood would then be taken in into the behind the veil and manipulated upon the atoning lid. The lid that goes upon the Ark of the Covenant is called the atoning lid, the kafar, which is the Hebrew word for atonement. As God looks down from heaven and he sees his righteous law encased in the ark and he sees his people have broken the law, then he sees the blood. As his righteous indignation goes out against the people who have rebelled against him, all of us, he then sees the blood for whom that blood was shed and his wrath is appeased and it is satisfied and he accepts the sinner, righteously so, based upon the life of the innocent one who gave his life as the substitute. It is a substitutionary atonement. The word propitiation means appeasing the wrath of God for sin. 
And the only way that wrath of God is appeased for sinners is taking the blood of his innocent son and then shedding that blood, and he accepts us only in his son, only because of what his son did for us, the great exchange. The other part of that exchange is he would take his royal garment, his his robe of righteousness, and he would clothe us in that robe so he became sin for us and that we would become righteousness of God in him. It is a complete substitutionary change. He was the innocent king. He would take his royal garment of righteousness and put it on us. He would take our sin and put it on him. He would take that and die on the cross to show the sacrificial animal and to show the sacrifice uh, that the goat had been presented and, and God would be pleased with that sacrifice. And yet he would see us now as royal kings. That's just an amazing thing to think. But there was another goat that day, and that goat was expressing a doctrine which we call expiation. Propitiation is the appeasement of God's wrath because of our sin. Expiation is the idea of God removing our sin from us. The scapegoat was one who was chosen by God again, and and as the scapegoat was chosen People, the high priest would put his hands upon the goat. The high priest representing all of the people now. All of the sins of the people would be borne upon that scapegoat. Confessing the sins of the people. And then that scapegoat would be taken outside of the camp and released and let go alive. Now, we don't know whatever happened to that scapegoat, but we do know this. He never came back to, into the camp. As the old hymn would say, gone, 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 all of our sins are gone. And that's what the scapegoat was picturing, taking the burden of our sins, the guilt of our sins, the heaviness of our sins against God and taking it out of the camp, taking it out of the holy city, taking it out and away, and it is gone. So in expiation, our sins are completely removed. The penal sanction for our sin has been settled in the propitiation propitiatory sacrifice of the sin offering, and now all of the sins that were the burden to us are gone. All of everything is settled now between God, the holy God, and the sinner so that we are now accepted before the face of God in Christ. And so as we have this great picture from Leviticus 16 that got played out year after year after year, We have now what's coming in the narrative of the reality of that being carried out on Jesus. Jesus would be that sin offering for his people when his blood would be shed upon Calvary as he died upon the cross. God will look down upon 
His righteous and perfect Son, but now bearing the sins of His people and His wrath against us would be appeased and satisfied because His Son was innocent and this substitute has been made for us. And He dies. If that were... All to the story, there would be no story. But he rose three days later in triumph over death, over sin, over the devil, in order to be our great high priest. Who continues to make intercession for us. But there's an aspect, too, that Jesus was the scapegoat. In the sense that when he did that, he bore our sins, was taken outside of the camp, and took our sins away from the holy city, away from the temple, the presence of God, and took it away. And there he died with our sins, so that where Jesus went, there our sins went. And he died, and He was put into the grave, and so therefore our sins have been put to death. No longer to haunt us, but they are gone, gone, gone. All of our sins are gone. And so we have two sides of that scapegoat going on, I believe, here in this narrative. Jesus is about to live this out. But you have a selection between two people. You have a prisoner, Barabbas, who was a notorious criminal, even by the Roman standards, even by the Jewish standards, by the Gentile standards, by the Jewish standards. He was a notorious sinner by anybody's standards. He was a murderer. In John's gospel, he says he was a thief. Mark's gospel tells us he was an insurrectionist and a rebel and a murderer. Matthew simply tells us he is a notorious criminal. He is a very bad sort. He is a scandal of scandals. And here he is imprisoned, righteously so, and being held there in prison Because of his own crimes and because of his own sins. But because of Jesus, Barabbas gets set free. And the selection that God himself was making between the two, between the scapegoat and the sacrificial animal of the goat, was God's choice. Jesus had to be the sacrificial offering for sin, in order to set Barabbas free. And we have this selection, but crying out through the sinners of the Jews, set Barabbas free. Why? This man is done. Set Barabbas free. What do you want us to do? Crucify him. And so like the scapegoat, the sinner gets to go free. He didn't have to lose his life for what he righteously deserved. 
Jesus, the innocent, the holy, the harmless, the pure. Yet it was because of the sin of the envy of the leaders of the Jews, he was turned over unjustly in that sense to be sacrificed for sinners. Jesus knew what it was like to have injustice by men upon him so that the justice of God could be settled for the injustice of us men. Jesus was the sacrificial animal. Bearing all of our sins, his blood would be that which would appease the wrath of God, and so God's wrath would be turned away. One day, folks, we're going to have to stand before the holy God. He is the judge of all the earth, and we're either going to stand in Jesus or we're going to stand outside of Jesus. That's the only two options we have. And if we stand in Jesus, we can stand bold and sure that God's wrath has been once and for all paid for us in Jesus. But if we are not in Jesus that will be accounted unto us and we must endure that for eternity. We must give an account and his justice must be met because his righteousness is his character. But Christ removed the wrath of God for those who are in Jesus, who've trusted Jesus. He, he has set the captives free. My chains fell off, the hymn writer would say, and I was set free. Now, Barabbas in this scene, in this narrative, is a real notorious criminal, but there's a representation that he represents us all. He represents you, he represents me. Because all sinners have fallen short of God's glory, and because we are all sinners, the wages of sin is death. We are all notorious sinners before the eyes of God. There's no righteous, no not one. And here's Barabbas, and, and here God is calling for our freedom in Jesus alone. And Jesus stands in the place of the condemned one while we get to walk free. The next time you ever cry out in some situation, that's not fair, you think about this right here. Remember that God's mercy in your life has not been fair. But thank God for his mercy. That he has not rewarded you according to what your sins deserved, but has been merciful to you in the face of his son Jesus Christ. Has been gracious to you to give you things you have not deserved. And when you weren't even looking for the release, all of a sudden, Barabbas gets set free. And can you imagine? Seriously? Really? And he gets to go. Because Jesus took his place. And he sets us free. He took our sins. He was punished for what we deserve. You're talking about a great injustice in order to settle a greater matter of justice before the living God according to God's eternal plan. At the same time, this sinless and righteous king gave us his royal garment 
And now we are clothed in his kingly garments. That robe of garment of which he has clothed us is his righteousness. And so we come into the presence of God. God looks upon us and he sees the righteous garment of his own son, righteousness. And he says, welcome beloved in him. That's why the scripture said he has made us kings and priests together with him. And we are reigning with Christ even now, seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but that is a tremendous blessing. An eternal blessing, a blessing for which needs to grip our heart every day. In this great cosmic battle for the souls of men, it comes to a climax. We are witnessing in Matthew 27, the very time when all of this history is being packed in. Ever since that fall, the densely point of which we are now seeing in a day and in three have been expressed and taught through object lessons and through stories and through all of these experiences for thousands of years that are now going to be expressed and culminated and fulfilled in three days. To explain what is going on here took that much time for us hard-hearted sinners to understand a simple exchange. And how difficult it's been ever since for people to believe it, to trust it, and to yield their lives to it for their own good that they can be set free. This is what it's going to take, God says, to be reconciled to me. It's going to happen through the death of my son, the innocent goat, the innocent one. The ironies now would become so thick on this time that the innocent would be condemned while the unquestionably guilty would be released. The king of all of nations would be turned over to death by an underling governor. The people who shouted only a few days before, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, would now be crying, crucify him, crucify him. The covenant promises, which included tremendous blessings of God for God's covenant people and their children. And now the covenant people of God are shouting for the covenant curses to be upon them and their children. His blood be upon us and our children. And for over 2,000 years, the curse of the covenant has been doing exactly that and blinding their eyes to who really their Messiah has been. And then it's going to only be the power and the miracle of God that will open up their hearts to see who Jesus is and what great things he's done for them. But it's no different for you or me. It's going to take the miracle and the power of God to open up our hearts and our eyes to see who this Jesus is and to believe in him and trust in him. These are the things of which light overcomes the darkness. When Jesus died, he gives life. And so when you have death of the one giving life to many, God leaves his own glory that we on earth might have access into heaven. For Jesus to suffer God's wrath in our behalf so that you and I will never know what it's like to experience the wrath of God. Ever. 
And that's what Jesus did when he set us free. Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And if you know the Son of God, you will be free indeed. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I want to close with three applications. The first two are going to be in the likeness of an old hymn, Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So the first application is you've got to trust. You have to trust in Jesus. You have to put your trust in him. And perhaps earthly illustrations that kind of brings it down to our level tends to help us a little bit more. So let me bring it down to earth and let's just put it right down here. I've had some people tell me, I don't trust you. And what they're saying is, I do not believe that you have my best interests in mind. That's what they're saying when they say, I don't trust you. I'm skeptical of you. I really don't believe everything that you say. Now, anyone like that will look to me or upon me with some level of suspicion. They will not follow my leadership, nor respect me as their pastor, nor will they obey me as their elder. Now, you take that illustration, which can be more understood, because we have all, we have all kinds of earthly applications for this. And they all apply to concepts of what it means to trust in Jesus. Do you trust that Jesus has your best interest in mind? Can you trust that about him? Whatever he would ask of you, do you trust that he has your good and your best interest in mind? Do you believe that Jesus will take care of you in every situation, in life and in death? Do you believe that? Are you skeptical of Jesus? Are you even skeptical of what he claimed to be? Do you believe he is really the Son of God and everything that he said is absolute truth? Do you look upon him with some form of suspicion or his actions or words with a big question? Will you truly acknowledge him as your king? Will you follow him wherever he leads? Will you honor and respect him as your Lord? Will you obey him? Now, if that's true... Here's some things that you can count on. Number one, your guilt is gone. If you can trust Jesus, your guilt is gone. God will never deal with you in terms of his law that you have broken. Do you hear that? God will never deal with you in terms of his law that you have broken. Because that was dealt with in Jesus on the cross. Jesus took your place on that account, and he dealt with it then. Your guilt is gone. Number two, you will never experience the wrath of God. That was dealt with with Jesus. For your sins, when he bore them upon the cross, Jesus dealt with that. He felt the wrath of God, but he appeased his justice, and you will never experience God's wrath because Jesus took that penalty for you. Number three, your sins are gone. 
Never to come back to haunt you. Never to come back into the camp. Never to be brought up again by God. And never to be dealt with ever again. Your sins are gone. They are gone. Are you skeptical of that? Or can you trust God for that? Do you really believe what he says when he says your sins are gone? Now you, wait a minute, pastor, I still sin. Yes, you do, and I do too, but that guilt is gone. The punishment is gone. And in Christ, you have satisfied the law, and by the Spirit, the law is being fulfilled in you in Christ. And so while you still sin, that's why we come together to ask God for forgiveness. But that sin that we still sin in this life, if we are in Christ, will not endure the punishment of God. It will not have the guilt of God upon us. It will not have the the, the wrath of God poured out upon us. But it does break our fellowship. And so we long to have that sweet fellowship restored. And he says, confess your sins, and that will be restored. Now, God, from time to time, will allow you to suffer the consequences of his sin. But when you do, these are not penal sanctions that are being executed. This is not justice being done. This is not God's penalty. All of that was settled. But the consequences of sin that sometimes he allows us to go through is that which he then uses to chasten us, to sanctify us, to love him more, to experience God's joy all the more fully, and to know the peace of God that when we do fall, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus, who is a propitiation for our sins. And we can call upon him, and he brings us back into that sweet fellowship with the God that loves us, who's given his son for us, who has given the sin offering for us, who has taken all of our sin upon his son and put it in the grave, never to come back out of the grave ever again. For if you are died with Christ, you are buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, And sin no longer has dominion over you. You have been released from that prison. But this trust that I talk about is a saving faith. There is a difference between merely believing the facts and trusting yourself to it. Faith that does not save might believe certain truths. It might agree with all of those things in one's head, but it does not trust Jesus for these things to say, ah, those things are true, and they are true for me, and therefore I will claim them and know them by the word of God. That's what Jesus says. Trust. The corollary to trust is obey. If you trust him, you will obey him. These two are not the same, but they are inseparable. Obedience is the natural fruit of trust, and trust will be tested by your obedience. And if you're going to trust him, you're going to have to obey him on his terms. Again, bringing this down to an earthly level, if a wife doesn't trust her husband, she will not obey him. 
When a child doesn't obey his parent, he will not obey the parents. Every time there is disobedience in your life, there's going to be a lack of trust at some level because it just goes inseparably with it. And of course, that trust ultimately is in God himself who has put us under authority. He has put us under pastors and elders. He's put us under fathers and mothers. He has put us under husbands. He has put us under civil magistrates. And ultimately, the trust will have to be in the sovereign God. But to trust Him, you're going to have to obey Him even in the course of this life. Now, when you're called to obey... What we find sometimes instead of obedience, but because we're trusting in the sovereign God, He's called us to obey, even on this platform down here of this horizontal relationship. Oftentimes, what we find in competition with this is our willfulness. Our willfulness. I don't want to, or I don't think that's right, or some kind of self reliance, or some kind of self righteousness. I think it's better this way. Well, I know he told me to do this, but I'm going to do it this way. Why? Because this way's better, or that way's wrong, or my way's right. Are you trusting the sovereign God? The very fact that we do not trust is because we believe that there's some other way to think about the matter, or there's something more aligned with the truth that we understand, that perhaps maybe our husband doesn't understand, or maybe he's going to make a major mistake, and I've got to follow this. No, I can't do that. See, there's always a personal judgment that you're going to bring to the case when there's an act of insubordination or an act of obedience. That judgment is always going to be based on whom do you trust the most. And I know on the horizontal plane, the, the wife is saying, well, I can't trust my husband. Look how foolish he is. Look how many decisions he's made that is so bad for our home. And God says, but do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust the sovereign God who is over your husband's heart and over your husband's mind? And do you trust me? Oh, let Jesus be that perfect example to you. Ladies who may be living in a difficult relationship or children whose parents are not as faithful as they should be or, or uh, parishioners who fall under perhaps maybe uh, a great fallacy and an and error of their elders or us who fall under the tyranny of our civil magistrate. Let Jesus, just let Jesus be the example for us. He yields himself to an abusive system, to unjust authorities, because he trusted his heavenly Father. He did not come to do his own will, but the will of the Father that sent him. Because he trusted in God, he obeyed him, even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now hear this. It says of Jesus that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. 
The next time you are challenged to submitting to authority in your life, call this to mind. Jesus suffered injustices under kings, injustices even by his own parents, injustices by his family and friends and brothers, injustices by his own disciples, and injustices by the whole nation that he came to save. Jesus yielded to all of that because he trusted and obeyed his Father. And that's what we're called to do. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So the next time you think your husband is about to make a decisional mistake, remember that living your life mistake-free is not your objective. But living in the trust of God, yielding to his authority is. Do you believe that? And can you trust yourself to God who has called you to the Lord Jesus Christ of your life. Things are going to be really messy down here. Things are going to be really messed up down here. But if you can trust the sovereign God of the Lord Jesus Christ and learn that it was Jesus who learned obedience to the things which he suffered, even all the problems and the wrongs, it was not the perfection of all of this mistake-freeness that we had to think about it was trusting in God through all of the messiness that was about to take place on the cross, which was God's ultimate sovereign choice of which he's going to make all things right, all injustices right for those who give themselves to Jesus. So if we can get ourselves to follow Jesus and to trust him, we will obey him even in the most difficult of circumstances. And this will take place here on earth and living it out in the gospel with those that we live with and even those of tyrannical governments if we but choose and trust the king over them all. Do you believe that Jesus was Pilate's king? Do you believe that Jesus is the king of our president and our nation? And over China, and over Iran, and over Iraq, and over North Korea, Jesus is the King of all of the nations, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. But do you trust yourself to Him fully? The third application I want to take is this. It's really taking it right down into the context in which we live. I want you to consider yourself now to pick up your cross and follow Jesus and be the substitute for your neighbor. This is the act of love. Now, you can't be in atonement for your neighbor. There's no reason for it. There's no need for it. Jesus has already done that for you, and Jesus has already done that for your neighbor. But you can be a substitute. We can suffer for others so that their distresses might be a little lighter. We can endure injustices so that our brethren might be more blessed as a result. We can do very simple things, little tiny things, to be the substitute in the stead of our neighbor. You're going to sit down and lunch in just a little bit. And someone inevitably at your table is going to go get some dessert when they're finished. Perhaps it's you. You can go to that dessert table thinking about your dessert that you're going to get. Or you can look around and you can see who you might get dessert for as well. You're going there anyway. 
You might as well be a substitute of their having to get up, and you can bring back and serve those around you. It's a simple little thing of thinking about other people and learning to love and esteeming them better. Be the substitute for them. When you see trash that someone else has unrighteously and unjustly just left for somebody else to clean up or the dishes to do, then you can be the substitute and endure the injustice and pick it up and clean it up and do that as an act of love. And that's what Jesus has called us to. See, it requires some substitution. Some sacrifice. And that's what we're called to do, is to be like Jesus. If we can always keep Barabbas and Jesus in the backdrop and consider that great exchange, we can give ourselves to trust the truths that took place in our behalf in this great exchange for us, and then we will always have, always have available to us the grace available to do likewise to our neighbor even if they hate us, even if there's great injustice, or even if it's just something that we don't like to do because you have been set free because of the work that Jesus did for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful. When you look down upon us, we are all sinners and fall short of your glory. We all fall under the fair and righteous wrath of God, and yet in your mercy you sent Jesus Christ to bear our sins and to be our substitute and to take our sins away as that scapegoat showed, to have the blood of Jesus upon the cross appeasing the wrath of God for us so that we can have the smile of God upon us in him. And Lord, if there's anyone among us today that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, as personal Lord and Savior and has not given his life to trust him. Oh, they may have believed in him, but given their lives to fully trust him so that they will walk in obedience in every circle of life, in every sphere of authority, in trusting Jesus above it all. Lord, I pray your spirit would now open their hearts and they would give themselves fully and completely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and they might know the new life that he came to give. There's someone here that is under the heavy burden of guilt that has been struggling over and over in their own souls because it's just not going away. I pray that they would look to this scapegoat and they would know it never comes back and you will not hold them to the place where you're going to judge them for that sin and pour out your penalty upon them for it because you have taken it away in Christ to the grave. May we look to Jesus today and know He is our Savior and God is our friend and you love us with an everlasting love so much that you gave yourself as a substitute that we might be set free. Lord, we pray we would have the grace to go and do this with our neighbor and to love our enemies and to bless those who persecute us and truly be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect, complete in this. We fall so short of this every day, Lord, so give us the strength to do it this day for the glory of your name. And may we wake up tomorrow relying on your strength and the means that you've given to us to do it another day. 
and another day until the day you call us home. And we pray this for the glory and the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.